Hello, everybody. It's uh, the Monday Morning Analyst here on Monday, July 13th, 2015. Boy, we have waited for this day for a long time, haven't we? Right? The July 11th date of UFC 189 to see what would happen. And then the Monday after always seems to be Sunday too, but the Monday after always seems to be the day when you want to have um, so much discussion about it. This is such a big podcast, you know, not because of the podcast. I mean, you can make what you want of this podcast, but I mean, um, such a momentous time in the sport. And therefore, I feel like your podcasts and the work that you put in should sort of match the time. Um, this podcast, if you've never watched before, has three parts. I talk about a big overview. I then talk about um, the technical action themselves, and then what's coming in, in the uh, the week ahead. Or the you know what's up next in the docket in terms of the future events. Normally, what I try to do is I try to be as comprehensive as possible in talking about all the events. So there was an Invicta event. There was the Ultimate Fighter Twenty One finale last night. I apologize to all those fighters. There was some really good fights on those cards. I just, um, I try to keep this podcast at 30 minutes. I'm going to go over that time frame today. I'm just going to talk about the UFC 189 main card. And there were great fights on the prelim card. The Luis Smolka versus Neil Siri fight deserves some attention. But the fact of the matter is that UFC 189 main card is just so special. It's of things like that happen so rare in this sport and so infrequently that I think it would be tragic if I didn't go piece by piece on that main card and really dissect it and talk about it. If you want to ask me about the Neil Siri and Smolka fight or maybe the Wonder Boy Thompson versus Ellenberger fight, I'll do that on the on the live chat on Wednesday. But I, I, for purposes of this one, I'm just going to focus in on that UFC 189 main card, which is probably the best main card ever. I was trying to think about the best events ever, UFC 100, Pride Body Blow is one of my all-time favorites. And I think, you know, the day when Fedor assumed the mantle is the, good, the best heavyweight at the time, beating Noguera. And then, of course, you know, uh, Quentin Jackson beating um, uh, Kevin Randleman. All, all, all kinds of good stuff happened on that card. But um, but that th- those events stand out as some of your better ones. And then you have events like this, man, where I think I think it just blew UFC 166 out of the water. UFC 166 had better prelims. But anyway... So that's what we're going to do today on this podcast. So um, without further delay, let's talk about the first part, the big overview. I'll get to McGregor and Mendez and the co-main event in just a minute. But the big overview, I think, is as follows. Look, people were asking me yesterday, hey, you know, how was traffic for Sunday's event, given how momentous Saturday's event was? Traffic for Sunday's event was nubs. I mean, there was virtually no interest in it. Um you know, I'm not, I don't know what kind of TV ratings it will do, but I think I'm just trying to point out that like this is a star power-driven business. Everyone wants to talk about all the, how important the brand is, and the brand is important almost in a self-reinforcing way because the UFC makes it such a priority that it ends up being one. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, but the point being is uh, you know, UFC 189 was just so insanely special. I, I truly do not know how much better MMA can get. I don't want to limit my imagination and say it can't get better. But it that's pretty much as good as it gets, right? I mean, uh, so... Not just because the finishes were brutal and in that sense entertainment, but the stakes were high. And... Um, you know, there was, I think you saw the devastating power of what elite MMA looks like and that there was clarity about the finishes, right? I mean, the guys who won basically deserved all to win. Um, 
and that there was important matchups and that you saw a variety of weight classes. You know, it wasn't the perfect event, right? I mean, I don't know what event ever would be perfect, but I truly, when watching this, I just don't know how much better MMA gets. And when you think of it in those terms, it's just so special. It's just so utterly and completely without parallel. And I think part of the reason why it was so special was because, look, I'm a pretty big critic of, you know, uh, the UFC. I think a lot of MMA media is just cheerleading nonsense because all, a lot of the MMA media are fans. I, you know, I am too, I suppose, but someone's got to be out there, you know, pointing out some of the flaws, right? Someone's got to do it, so I'll do it. Um, and as I mentioned before, like, there was no carryover into Sunday, zero. Maybe if, if you were in Vegas and you were a fan, you got some of the UFC experience because you could buy a ticket at a cheaper price point. Okay, fine. But from the, you know the media perspective, there was, you know, it, it just doesn't, doesn't carry over. But, um, you know, what I took away from Sunday or Saturday was the UFC, man, they just took another turn. They stepped up in ways that are hard to articulate here. When you have a big fight and you have a big moment, the promotion has to also do their part both to get out in front and lead you to them and then also get out of the way. It's a very complicated task that they have. And I thought they, on Saturday, completely and totally nailed it. They debuted the new graphics packages. And I don't like the Reebok kits for any number of reasons, you know, aesthetically and then what they do to the fighter's income. But certainly it was part of a larger rollout of modernization. I think you can at least acknowledge that. Um, I thought that, you know, whether it has anything to do with Bellator, with the giant screens and their production effort that they're putting in, I don't know. But, you know, having the light show on the octagon, you know, when you, I think what had, and then of course, Sinead O'Connor, and then the guy from Stained, I think what you had been, I think we had all grown accustomed to was everything had just kind of been monotonously stale. You know, like when you watch MMA, what you want from a promoter is to, you know, to innovate is to update, is to give you a new twist and a new wrinkle. And that's a very, very difficult task. And you have to have some managed expectations or, uh, uh, you know, over time about what's possible. But, you know, from the light show to the intros, it just changed the color palette of the inside of the arena. Like you got different visuals to, you know, to stimulate your eye. Um, different ways to engage your brain with Sinead O'Connor, not singing acoustically, but, you know, with a minimalistic music. Same with the guy from, from Stained, um, Aaron Lewis. It was all these different ways to treat the consumer that the UFC hadn't done before. There wasn't any heavy dubstep and metal and then the same old walkout and same old walkout and same old walkout. They changed it and then elevated it at the exact same time. It was brilliant. It was totally, completely brilliant. It was the UFC that I have been waiting for since Brock Lesnar left. I've, I have long thought that the UFC, it needed some modernization. And again, I understand that that is not a very easy thing to do. But it's a thing that has to get done. There always has to be envelope pushing. And look, I don't think that the new electronic version of Face Pain is much of an upgrade. But I at least, I at least am grateful that they're acknowledging that something about it had to change. Right? I think that's the insight there. They realize that just doing the same old thing over. When you have 50 events a year or 40 plus events a year and they all kind of look and feel the same, it gets old, man. It gets super old. And UFC 189 main card, and to a lesser extent, the, the, you know, because the, the Fox Sports is doing their own thing, but that main card 
with the new graphics and some of the new sounds, by the way. They don't have that Roman Gladiator sound on tail of t the tape anymore, right? So that was new. Um, and then the light show with the, with the Irish flag being the octagon when Connor walked out with Sinead. I know they can't do that every time or hardly at all because it's, as Dana White explained at the post by press, are very expensive. Okay, cool. I get it. But I am so glad they at least attempted. And it wasn't just the event. They tried harder with the weigh-ins. They tried harder with Embedded. They did the promotional tour, and Aldo fell out, but they had Mendez on the ready. Like, every element of it must have been a complete and total chore to execute, and yet they went out and did it. That is what I am talking about. And you cannot deny me. If you if you say I'm wrong about oversaturation, I, I don't know what planet you're living on, but you cannot deny me that when you watch those fights at the UFC 189 main card and then you watch the next day, the Ultimate Fighter, I don't care that they all have Reebok gear on or that their gloves say UFC. Two completely different universes. When you watch elite MMA, uh, not high-level MMA, not very good MMA, elite MMA with an elite promoter on an elite game and an elite effort, there is nothing that can touch that. Nothing. This is what I'm talking about when I say what I want to see from the UFC is the only thing the UFC can do. Namely, Bellator can put their best foot forward and never sniff it. That is what you saw with UFC 189. And they got lucky with the fights. You know, they can only do so much. They can set a card up. They can promote it. They can have Sinead O'Connor sing the foggy do. Uh, and they can have Connor walk in. And after that, it's just out of their hands. But, but in terms of UFC putting their best foot forward, my God, did they ever. That is how it is supposed to feel. If you were never around for the Brock Lesnar era, it felt like this. That when he competed, and he walked out to enter Sandman, but when, when he competed, there was just a bigness about everything, for a lack of a better description. There was, it just, you know, and the tension you felt. Like, when, you're, when, when the fight week begins, you should feel... Um, like you're sick of it, like you can't wait for it to happen, and yet giddy at the same time. It should be all this conflation of different emotions, of anticipation, of fatigue. That is what effective fight promotion feels like, and that is what you got. And I know if they're going to do all these events across the globe, it's not going to be you know at all something you can do at scale. I I get it, but you know Scott Coker talks about having these tent pole events. Well, maybe the UFC if they want to put on something on pay per view, wow me on your pay per view. What they did was. The UFC not only put on fights on Saturday night, they also put on a show. They put on a show independent of fights. That is what I'm talking about. You got the money. You have the resources. You have the technical wherewithal. Dazzle me. I am giving you my money. Give me a show. And that's exactly what they did. That is exactly what they did. That is the kind of event that will give you memories for life. You will go to your deathbed with UFC 189 and what you were doing, especially if you were there for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life, if you are a true fight fan, that is what's going to happen with UFC 189. No doubt about it. Zero question in my mind. So just something to keep in mind um, going forward. I, I just thought UFC 189 was so special. I thought everyone did their part. I thought everything worked out. I talked about, you know, before the handshake, you know, when, when fighters and promoters work together to make, you know, the event as big as possible. This was a different kind of handshake. This was the promoters and the fighters doing everything possible to execute on fight night to give the consumers their total value for their dollar. And that is, I mean, I mean, you want to talk about a home run. 
a complete home run. So for all the people who say I'm just a total critic and I'm a cynic and I say nothing but negative things, you know, a lot of times you're right. But it's because I'm looking for that because I know the UFC can do it. They prove they can do it. They prove they cannot just do it. They prove they can do it well, right? They can do it extremely well. I don't need to see personally as a consumer, not just forget me as a journalist, me as a consumer, I don't need, there's nothing for me when UFC puts on shows the same level as Bellator. There's nothing for me. What I want to see is that. That is what I want to see because nobody can touch that. Okay. With that out of the way, let's talk about some fights, shall we? All right. So, the way this normally works is I start from the top of the card, and then I work my way down. Again, I am not going to go into prelims. They were <laughs> they were bad. Uh, Smolka versus um, uh, Siri was good, and there may, there may have been one or two other ones. I don't know, but um, you get the idea. So here's how this works. This was UFC 189, uh, Chad Mendes versus Conor McGregor. It pulled 16,019 people at, in the attendance, which I think is more than Mayweather Pacquiao, but it did literally one-tenth what Mayweather Pacquiao did at the gate, uh, 7.2 million, which is still very good. Um, but I think all-time Nevada gates, it's like it's like 34th, 35th, if you look at all the boxing and MMA gates. you know, Because MMA gates haven't quite caught up to boxing gates yet. It's still a little bit more blue-collar in that way. Boxing still has... Um, which is a good thing, I think, actually. Boxing still has the ability to to fleece the richer, the the whales at the casino to to come in, but n- neither here nor there. Okay, in the main event, Conor McGregor defeated Chad Mendez via TKO punches at 4.57 of the second round. Wow, I didn't realize it was quite that late. Um, okay, so let's talk about Conor McGregor here. So here's what I'm going to do, because it is impossible to talk about Conor McGregor without one group losing their mind one way or the other. Like, his fans think that he walks on water, that this fight completely answered the wrestling question. It did not. Um, that he can do no wrong. Here's what I would say about Conor And then, of course, his detractors think he sucks, that he got exposed, that Mendez with a camp would run over him, and they're both wrong. They're both right, and they're both wrong. I'm going to talk to you like this, that if you are a Conor McGregor supporter, there are some things that I'm going to give you that you're going to love. There's also some things I'm going to give you that are clear weaknesses that you need to acknowledge. If you are a Conor McGregor hater, there are some things I'm going to give you that you're probably going to love. There are some things I'm also going to give you about Conor McGregor that you need to acknowledge that you're wrong about. It's just how it's going to go. The supporters are right about a lot, and so are the haters, uh, which makes it so great, right? That's what that's, that's actually what makes it so great. Okay, so um, Conor McGregor is for sure, actually, let me do one thing before I even start this, so there's no issue. Okay. Conor McGregor is for sure one of the best strikers in the UFC, independent of weight class. He is phenomenal. Phenomenal on his feet. I was so blown away by it watching, not just the first time, but the second time. Um, he is just a technical marvel when he is standing for so many different reasons. And the thing that you just need to understand about Conor McGregor is, and this is why his ground game is nowhere close to his striking game, when he is on his feet, he is 
effortless when he strikes, truly effortless. Uh, when he says he's out there not planning things, he's just feeling the moment. I mean, there's no way he's lying about that. It's hard to even talk about some of the things he does from a striking perspective because when you go and you watch Lawler versus McDonald, they're very elite strikers, <clears throat> but it's a little more methodical. Okay. With Connor, I mean, he throws a, a, a front uppercut, you know, left cross, teep, teep to a, you know, jumping, si- uh, jumping roundhouse kick, um, three or four spinning back kicks or, or turning side kicks, um, you know, leg kicks, uh, jab. Um, uh, he rarely doubles up on his jab, but sometimes he does. He'll double up on his jab and then throw the right, uh, excuse me, throw the left. Um, all kinds of stuff that he does. And it just comes in all different directions. There's really no way to, to get a hang on it. And it's not just that, the, you know, he has a natural command of, if, if you think of striking as a language, you know, my man is like, you know, well, I don't know if I call him Shakespeare, but John Keats, I don't know. Like, it's just so effortless for him. He speaks the language so fluently that he is a, you know, he's, he, he's a, he's a, he's a, I don't know what the best Irish university is, but if they taught striking in the language department, he would be, you know, your tenured professor. That's what he would be. And it's not just that. It's that, um, and this is how the fight starts off. McGregor immediately closes the distance. Immediately. Throws a spinning back kick to Menez's left side. What did this cause? Number one, he came across, but he didn't come across and then pose. He didn't come across and faint. He came across and spun. That freezes Mendez in space. We are now four seconds into the fight. McGregor is on. If you look at the octagon, there are two sets of concentric octagons inside, the two black lines. Within four seconds of the fight, McGregor is across the octagon, has got Mendez to cover up, freeze his feet, and now his back is against the fence. Within four seconds of the fight. Ladies and gentlemen, if that is not elite striking, nothing is. Because it's not just throwing which combinations and finding things with accuracy. It is setting up the conditions for your opponent to fail, which is exactly what he did within four seconds of the fight. Now, obviously, things change in the course of the fight. He gets taken down a few times. They actually rotate off the cage. But I'm just saying, who established dominance first? Conor McGregor. Fact. Not up for debate. Conor McGregor. And you can say, well, Chad was trying to reserve energy. Get off the fence. Get off the fence. You have to meet him. If you're going to beat Conor McGregor, you might beat him getting lazy, and we'll get to that in a minute. You might. You might. Because he does have he leave a ton of openings. But um, you're going to have to beat him here. Because the best thing about Conor McGregor is right now, and this won't last forever, everyone loses. Fatal loses. You know, Fedor lost, Anderson Silva lost. I don't know when Conor McGregor's going to lose. It could be 10 years from now, but he's going to. Everyone does. It's just the nature of the game. Um, but right now, my man is bulletproof. Bulletproof. You have to break him here. Because if you don't break him here, you're going to have to land a thunderous punch to do it and shut his body off. Because if this doesn't get shut off, good luck. Good luck, because you're going to need it. So, comes across the cage, four seconds, throws a spinning back kick, or a spinning heel kick, I have to go back and watch. Enough that Mendez blocks it, frozen in space. Okay. Second thing is, um, McGregor's sort of like trying to find a shot here, trying to find a shot here, throws a knee, I think it was a left knee, 
but I don't remember. Either way, uh, Mendes catches it and basically sort of turns it into a modified single, turns him around, dumps him on the ground. Um, doesn't do a whole lot with it. Connor does what's called a technical stand-up from there. Um, it's nothing major. It's actually the first thing you learn in jiu-jitsu. The first couple things you learn in jiu-jitsu are um, how to shrimp, right? If you're on your back, how to get your hips out of the way, typically for regarding purposes. And the second thing you learn is a technical stand-up. A technical stand-up is if, and I do it because, how do I do, how do what's, I always do technical stand-ups. Uh, I, I haven't done them recently because, um, I'm trying to think here. Yeah. I usually have my left hand out. You can do either side. But the point being is, the way you do it is you always keep your eyes on your opponent. You have one hand out completely in front of you to protect yourself. This hand goes behind you, and then you stand with your foot closest to your hand, first, second, and then you stand up, and your hands are back to your head. This is called a technical stand-up. There's nothing particularly marvelous or important about it. It's actually quite basic. I'm just telling you this is how the fight goes. He's able... Mendes doesn't put a lot of pressure after catching the single. So McGregor does a technical stand-up, and they're back on their feet. Um, Mendes tries to swing some home run right hands, a couple of which partially land, but nothing too big. Um, what's interesting to note is at this point in the fight, Mendes, they've actually, Mendes gets turned. Um, and what eventually happens is Conor McGregor lands the same combination that ultimately finished the fight, which is uh, a jab cross but when he hits you with the jab he actually lets you circle out a bit this is a kind of deceiving thing he'll jab you while you're moving away not too hard actually he'll, i mean he'll hit you with it but it's nothing nothing major while you're circling to the outside of his power hand and then he'll come across his body using his length he has excellent judgment about distance so even though he's punching across his body even though he's even jabbing you almost away from himself in some ways. He understands exactly where you have to be, and and you think you're far away. You don't realize that at a huge distance, he makes it up with that ultra-long reach he has. So he connects on it early in the fight, by the way. Doesn't stop Mendez. I mean, it connects, but just pointing out that he uses it later on in the fight. And, and used it, I think, also, gosh, I want to say in the Seaver fight, too. Um, okay. So uh, McGregor throws one, two, three, four spinning back kicks. This is the point where Mendez is breathing hard. Now, he's eaten a bunch of teep kicks and a bunch of uh, body punches, too. He's been doing body work the whole time. But I want to point out, this is where the, the, the back kicks begin to land, um, mostly on Mendez's arm. They don't really get through. Maybe one got through, but it's not like they were, like, pounding him, right? 348 is the time on the clock. 348 is the first time you see Mendez take a deep breath. So this is what I want to point out. Is it true that the, the, the smaller camp had an effect on Chad Mendez, that he wasn't able to get the proper um, cardio up for this fight? Of course. This is such a very fair argument to say. It is also true that he has more than one minute and 12 seconds left in him of oxygen, right, before he has to take a deep breath. He takes his first deep breath at 348 of the first round. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is the result of body work, too. Both things are true. It is definitely the body work that he was doing. He was throwing body kicks, teeps, and body shots. They were landing, mostly uncontested. Not entirely, um, but it's after the spinning back kicks. You see him rotate out to his right, and you see him take a big one. Take a big one at 348. So, yes, did the fact that he did not have a good camp affect him? No doubt about it. So did that body work. Undeniable. Uh, okay. Okay. 
So a couple things happen here. McGregor taunts him like this, like hands out, you're not doing anything, and Mendez cracks him with a good one-two. Here is something that Conor McGregor fans need to accept. All that clowning S that he does, it's going to backfire. If not now, later. It's going to backfire. He's not doing as much clowning as Anderson Silva did against Weidman. I mean, Anderson Silva was doing like the Dougie and dancing and everything. He's not going that far with it. But somebody who doesn't get affected by that kind of thing, because everyone said, oh, Silva's in Weidman's head. Word. Is that why he got stretched, Silva? All this talk about who's in whose head when you're dealing with lifelong competitors is such a stupid thing to talk about. Chad Mendez did not win or lose this fight based on what McGregor was doing. In fact, he got closer to victory because of all the jawing he was doing. Because when you open up your hands like this and you've got someone who can power punch with ridiculous explosive hand speed like Chad Mendez, you're going to eat a couple shots. Obviously, Conor McGregor has a tremendous chin. But I'm just pointing out all the stuff about, well, he's in Mendez's head. No, he really isn't. And the more he does this, the more someone else is going to light him on fire. If not in the next fight, or the next fight after that, or the next fight after that, someone is going to do it. And you need to acknowledge it's not a strength. Not against anybody really, really good. When you're beating the Dennis Seavers of the world and the Brimages of the world who are good fighters, but they're not really great, fine. You can do all that stuff that you want. Against the best guys, it's going to eat you up eventually. It is not a good idea. He surrendered a lot of big punches as a consequence of doing that. So let's see. Um, so the first real takedown that he scored was not just the – he grabbed the knee off the fence early. Um, M- Mendez scores a knee tap where you block one side, you shove – it depends how you want to do it. You can club over the neck, you can shove in the armpit, but you block a side and then you run them towards the same side that you're blocking different ways you can do it he runs that direction and McGregor is sort of hopping on and hopping on it so what does Mendez do he immediately on a dime switches directions picks him up and then drops him for the takedown now this is something kind of interesting what he did not do was what's called the Barzagar finish the Barzagar finish is when you hit a double you can do it off different takedowns but let's say I'm blasting into you on a double you hit the double and then you take an angle immediately because the reason why you do that is, number one, you know, if you walk forward, you have great balance. If you walk backward, you don't have great balance, but it's still pretty stable. It's the side-to-side where you can have some problems if somebody blocks you. Because if you've got one leg, if you block a side, whoop, you go over. Barzagar, it was Mansoor Barzagar was a famous wrestler who basically patented this. You hit a double, switch the angle immediately. You, like, leap to one side. And when you notice when guys do it in wrestling, guys like Josh Koscheck, guys like Mo Lawal, they land immediately in side control as a consequence. He does not do that, Chad Mendez. He actually picks up McGregor and then drops him. But when he drops him, uh, McGregor's able to like readjust his hips to establish himself square with Chad Mendez. So now Chad Mendez is locked in McGregor's guard. Um, and this high amplitude thing, that is another exhausting move. So he got the takedown. I think the most impressive part about Mendez there was the ability to switch on an angle. But you know, lifting him up, not using the bar cigar finish. These kinds of things will come back to haunt you against someone like Conor McGregor. Now, let's talk about, um, he doesn't hold him much there. McGregor does another technical stand-up, eats two huge shots for Mendez. Then a third and a fourth, he had also eaten the elbow. At this point, you know, Mendez is clearly winning the fight, just was. He, McGregor was eating a ton of shots, had been taken down, and now was bloodied. All right, so this is where we are. Mendez tries another knee tap, this time gets it right away. Doesn't have to go one way and then turn the other, or go one way, pick up and drop. He doesn't have to do any of that. He gets it immediately. 
Um, Mendez does what's called, okay, so he gets in the guard. Um, Mendez steps over into half and does what's called a knee slice pass. To get a proper knee slice pass, I, if I'm going this way, I'm going to establish an underhook on this side so you can't come around and take the back. And with the same side knee, I'm going to drive it. I'm going to try and get your knee as flat to the mat as possible. And I'm going to take the same side knee as if I have the underhook. I'm going to drive it across your thigh with my shin. And I'm going to basically slide like, a, like I'm almost like a baseball player. I'm going to slide into side control. He does that, except he slides right into crucifix. Now, to Conor McGregor's credit, he's able to uh, scramble out. I think one thing that we learned about Conor McGregor in this fight, he actually has pretty underrated scrambling skills. They're not great, but they're pretty good. They're pretty good. But against this position, you know, you're always a step behind Chad Mendes. Chad Mendes is the best that when guys try to roll to their base, he comes, he beats the arm, he he gets behind the arm, and then gets to their back. He did that again with Conor McGregor and then used that to flatten him back out. So great job there. Both in Conor McGregor and getting out of the crucifix, but you know he he granted the knee slide. You know the, the you can call it the knee slide or the knee slice. It depends on what you want. But he grants him the knee slice, goes right into crucifix. Yes, McGregor got out, but then he gets beat on the scramble. So something to keep in mind for the for future purposes. Um, so at this point, he tries. He goes back to half guard. Mendez tries to wrap the head. So when you wrap the head, when you come around. You need to have your arm all the way around. You need to be having the – I like to have the chin cupped. It's not anything I'm particularly good at, but I've done it. You need to have the chin cupped. And then you have to have, like, their head, like, on the back of the meat of the shoulder. Your lat has to be on their neck. Uh, Hani Yaya is the king of this, right? So you have the chin cupped, lat on the back of the neck. Um, Conor McGregor had always a hand inside. And so he was never really able to get it. Plus, he did a good job of keeping one of Mendez's legs because you have to have both legs free for that kind of guillotine to work. You can't get the right leverage if one of your legs is stuck in half guard. Basically, the round ends there. Round two. So what did Conor McGregor do so well in this? I talked about before. The cage cutting was incredible. He marches right across, gets you behind the two black lines, and now you're just at his mercy. He's just pot-shotting you, jab, cross, jab, cross, hook uppercut, um, double jab, teep. I mean, it, it just the combinations are insane that he's coming with, right? So Mendez times a left straight and just doubles. Uh, uh, McGregor throws a left straight, and and uh, Mendez level changes, picks him up, and drives him to the mat. No bar cigar finish. So how does he end? Right in McGregor's guard, which is not the end of the world, but I'm just saying. Um, okay, so we just need to talk about McGregor's guard for a minute. It is non-existent. Non-existent. Now, why? Was he injured? There are certainly some speculation that he had an MCL tear. Maybe that's it. Um, some have speculated he was just being patient. Okay, I am willing to buy the idea that his injury contributed to his inability to work his guard. I am not. I am not willing to buy the idea that this was intentional. That his intentional strategy was just to hold on because he thought that was the best way to go through the fight. No. Sorry. If you, it's not just his guard work. His hand work was not particularly strong either. Chad Mendez routinely had his hands on the mat, and the only thing, which is just a terrible idea, and the only thing that McGregor, from full guard, like it's one thing to have your hand on an underhook if you're trying to pass for the, like the knee slice, but if you're in full guard and you got hands on the mat, somebody who's really good is, gonna, is going to chew you up. Okay, you're going to get omoplatted. You're going to get triangled. Like, it's, it's bad. And he did it, and McGregor was doing nothing but trying to overhook and hand fight here, and not very successfully either. He was never trying to get wrist control. If he was trying to get his foot on the hips, it was poor. 
it was not good. Like there was, if you want to talk about how good Conor McGregor is, you don't get to talk about the guard. It's not good. Again, maybe we'll see a better one in the future because the injury was so bad it contributed to it. I'm willing to believe that. I am not willing to believe that was an intentional strategy to slow down Chad Mendez. No, I just think once he got there, that was all he had to give. Why was that all he had to give? I don't know. Maybe the injury contributed or didn't. But for me, I did not see a lot of sophisticated guard play there. Not at all. Um, Quite poor, to be perfectly honest. So from there, uh, you know, Mendez is just doing what he's doing, banging on him for for minute on end. All he has to do to get separation is just push on the chin, whip up, left over the top, an elbow, punches. McGregor's, you know, everyone talked about the uh, the elbows underneath. This is not a novel thing, guys. Guys have been doing the UFC forever. And, you know, I've seen it way worse before. I've seen guys get, you know, cut up and bleed on top of their head. Mendez had none of that. He didn't realize that you could do – it's not this motion that matters. It's this motion combined with gravity that makes it illegal. So if you're on your back and you're doing this, it doesn't matter because you don't have the force of gravity according to the rules. It's fine. But, you know, it's not like people are like, oh, he slashed him up from underneath. Hmm. I mean, it was cool. But, you know, if the round had ended when they were still on the ground, I mean, he lost that round easily. Uh, that's not for debate. So, for me, if you're a Conor McGregor supporter and you're like, oh, well, he answered the wrestling question, he did not. And if you if you want to say, oh, well, he answered, you know, look, he can deal with an elite wrestler on the ground. No, he cannot. He was able to patiently wait out those things. And he didn't get finished from there. But that's not the same as offering any kind of meaningful offense. When it comes to his takedown defense, it's adequate at best. And when it comes to his guard, it's virtually non-existent. How much those are related to injuries, I don't know. But here's what happened. He eventually gets his right foot on the left hip of Chad Mendez. Mendez times it immediately, steps over, and tries to wrap the head for that guillotine. This is what Conor McGregor does well. When you, if, if someone gets to the side of me and my elbow is still pinned to my hip and I'm covering up, have they passed my guard? Sort of. I mean, they got to the side of me, but you haven't really passed someone's guard until you get that elbow open and then you occupy this space. You have to do it. You haven't really done what you're supposed to do until you have occupied underneath the elbow. If the elbow is closed, you still got some work to do. Conor McGregor does a great job because what happens is Mendez almost tries to knee slice, gets just enough space, and then tries to like hop over into mount. A little bit, he just tried to force something that wasn't really there. Conor McGregor keeps his left elbow and his left knee together, blocking the entry to the left side, keeping his hand here. Kind of impressive that he's able to do that. Another reason why his length is so critical at featherweight. Then takes his right elbow and uses it on the inside thigh. So he's blocking the hand here and then keeping the elbow and the knee connected. He uses that connected elbow and that connected knee as a modified butterfly hook to get Mendez over to that weak side and get to his base. Mendez tries to second, tries to like react to it, sits to guard. But when, he's, uh, but when he sits, McGregor rolls with him They because he tries to sit and then go back to Mount, like just to sit and roll through. As he rolls through, McGregor goes with him, and I think, how does he go again? Uh, coming with his right arm on Chad's right side because they're like this. So 
So what I took away from that exchange was Conor McGregor's submission defense is excellent. His submission offense, not good. His submission defense, very good. And his scrambling, very underrated. This is not, to me, an accident. If your offense is not very good, but you have very good defense, and you have very clear understanding of the space needed to maintain yourself in a bad position, um, you're going you're gonna to have a real patient approach to offense. You're going to try and secure an overhook. You're only going to work with full guard, and you're going to wait your turn till an opening presents itself, and then you're going to, you know, fake. You're going to modify butterfly, hook them over, roll to your base, beat them in the scramble, and stand, which is exactly what happened. Okay, so that's what you want to say about Conor McGregor's jujitsu. Offensively, from on top, he can pass guard, he can move to mount, he can pound you. He's got some good stuff going on there. Offensively, off of his back, total non-threat. Total non-threat defensively off of his back, okay, not so great against ground and pound. Defensively off of his back to create scrambles and uh, not get caught in bad spots, very, very good. Excellent even. That's how you need to break down his game, all the different pieces there. Just saying he answered the, you know, how's he going to deal with this and that, some ways good, some ways bad, okay? So finally he gets to his feet, and this to me is the genius of Conor McGregor. Gets back to his feet, shoves him off, and what does he do? Immediately closes the distance and gets right back on top of him. First strike, what does he throw? Teep to the gut. Boom. This is what I'm talking about with Conor McGregor. It's this. If you don't beat this, even with all his other deficiencies, you're going to have problems. You're going to have problems. Because he strikes with Chad Mendez like he has in range and with fluidness like he has better wrestling than Chad Mendez. He just gets up and marches right into him. A lot of other wrestlers would back up. They would be afraid. They wouldn't know what to do. It would be a thing. It would be a total thing. Um, he just marches right across. Boom. From there, uh, you know, Chad fires uh, basically a lazy shot, gets stuffed. McGregor comes back and then just unloads on him. And what is he finishing with? He gets him fading to the right, pops him with a jab, crushes him with the left. Mendez drops, and that's all she wrote. Some folks had a question about the stoppage. I do not. He went like this, showed Herb Dean his back. That's not intelligent defense. Um, I have no problems with the stoppage. So for me, Conor McGregor is kind of like Anderson Silva. I'm not saying he's as good as Anderson Silva, but Anderson Silva had, and I made this mistake too, for years, really suspect takedown defense. And you would say, oh, man, you know, he, uh, Chad Mendez, or uh, Chad Mendez, Dan Henderson can take him down. Matt Lindland can take him down. And that's true. But, you know, he's got a Anderson Silva, Anderson Silva had better offensive jiu-jitsu from my standpoint than Conor McGregor. But he had really good defensive jiu-jitsu too. I mean, Travis Luter did some things, but he screwed up his his chance. Um, but what, what, what Silva would do is he would, you know, he would eventually work on his takedown defense. But he would get caught in these bad spots, or at least he would be taken down. But he would just wait you out. He would just wait you out. So the question about Conor McGregor is, did he answer the wrestling question? Yeah. Turns out he can't wrestle that well. But what it also turns out is that it's not that he can wrestle. It's that he can, dis he can defeat you despite not being able to wrestle. He can, de he can defeat you despite not having much of an active guard because his scrambling is really underrated. His defensive jiu-jitsu is very strong. His offensive jiu-jitsu is very strong from on top. We knew that. But um, he's got just enough of the right defense in place to overcome some of those glaring weaknesses. 
folks were like, well, if he had had a camp from Chad Mendez, you know, he would have had better takedown defense. Yeah, that may be true. That may be true. But Chad would have had Chad had a bunch of lazy shots in this one. I doubt he would have had as many of those. And I think more to the point, um, if your takedown defense looks like this this late in your career, or I shouldn't say this late at this stage in your career, one camp is not going to fix it. You know, one thing that's interesting to me is Straight Blast Jim has produced a lot of good fighters, and Conor McGregor, who is just a world class striking talent, he is a phenomenal striking talent. But I wonder if they need to incorporate because because McGregor says he's never going to leave the camp, and that's probably true. I wonder if they need to start bringing in some more wrestlers. I know whatever coach he has is probably pretty good. I'm just saying wrestling against Gunnar Nelson is not going to get it done. Wrestling against Cahal Pendra is not going to get it done. They're good wrestlers. It's not quite enough to get his game where it needs to be. Okay. So that's what I took away from that. That's that. I think that's the fair answer about Conor McGregor. It's not that he has good wrestling. He doesn't. And it's not that he has good guard jiu-jitsu. He does not. It's that he has great defensive instincts. He builds structures to prevent getting overwhelmed. Remember that knee? I mean, that's a structure you're building here, right? That's what you are. You're building a frame. And then his scrambling, I think, is very underrated. I think that's what folks have not given him credit for. It's a new thing that I really took advantage of here. His scrambling is very, very underrated. So I spent enough time on that fight. That's what happened there. Let's talk about Lawler McDonald, arguably the best title fight in UFC history. So if you watch the BJJ Scout video, and by the way, this fight, uh, Lawler defeated McDonald at one minute of the fifth round. Um, so, so this fight was incredible. BJJ Scout did a video talking about lead foot dominance because you have Southpaw, Robbie Lawler, you have... Um, you have orthodox Rory McDonald. So it's not required that you have lead foot dominance, meaning if you, you want to you have the outside foot. Because if, you, if, you, if you're facing an opposite stance person and you have the outside foot, it opens up the firing lane for your power hand. That's what, that's what they're talking about. Um, not required, but helpful. So here's what my basic takeaway was from this fight was that if they were kind of next to each other and they were hand-fighting a little bit and pawing as they circled, it was fairly even. Um, you know, Rory, or excuse me, I should say, Robbie had a couple of decent tricks where he would throw like an axe kick. And the reason why he would do it is because if he didn't have lead foot dominance, he would throw it only to park the outside lead foot now on the outside of McDonald's foot and then fire the left as he slipped the jab. That happened actually twice. That, that you know, because McDonald or... Uh, Lawler has all kinds of veteran tricks to establish that presence. Um, but the big takeaway for me was that the more that Robbie showed motion, the more it caught McDonald freezing in space. Yes, the big people all talk about McDonald's or um, Lawler's power punching. He does have very good power punching, but like when does he use it? In a couple of scenarios, one when you're on the ground, he's trying to finish you off. He's got like bludgeoning power there. But he doesn't strike like he used to. He doesn't leap into these, you know, I mean, he does a little bit, but in a polished way. He doesn't have these reckless, huge punches that he used to throw. He throws lots of jabs and crosses. His power is strong, but he's not going to knock you out one punch in that scenario. He might knock you out if you have, if you've been hurt or you're not looking properly. But, I mean, how many punches did he land on McDonald where, yes, they were doing damage? I'm not saying they're not powerful, but they're not one-punch crippling like they used to be. Not because he can't throw them, but because he doesn't in that scenario. So when they were just sort of like pawing and hand-fighting with their lead hands, it was relatively even. 
But the more that uh, Lawler was stepping out with the left, following with the right, circling back in, showing head movement, moving his hands, fainting, and then doing it all together, he would kind of have McDonald freezing in space. That, that was like, the big takeaway for me with that fight. Um, so I talked about some of the motion. Uh, so even in tight quarters, I, I told you about Lawler having some tricks. Um, McDonald also had a few sneaky things to do. Um, you know, he would jab to the body, kick to the body, and then you would see Lawler's hand start here, and then it would be here right around the chin. He would use his uh, right hand to, like, whip around the corner and tag him upside the head. I thought that was a neat little trick he was doing. Um, you know, Roy was always kicking the body to help, you know, Lawler's hands uh, change. Didn't get a lot of work done with it, but he was able to whip the hand around. Uh, and I also thought Lawler's takedown defense was phenomenal. I'll talk more about that in just a minute. Round two. So Rory eats a 2-3, which is a straight hook, and then another two. And what you see is that's where that lead foot dominance comes into play. He's stepping outside, slipping the jab, and then coming over with the two. Um, they, they trade power punches at that point, so they both land. He fires a left hand, Rory McDonald. So he fires his left, which is his lead, and misses with a right. But my point being was McDonald was being backed up. Lawler was trying to establish dominance. And I really thought that, you know, yes, he ate a couple of shots. He ate the two, three then the two, but then fired back with a nice left of his own, slipped the punch, showing nice composure in the pocket. I really admired that from Rory McDonald. Um, Rory's trying to jab every time Robbie tried to reset the angle. So I told you about a couple of those tricks where Robbie would throw like a fake axe kit, then step outside and drive the left, slip in the punch. But there was a, you know, that wasn't, he wasn't able to do that a lot, especially as McDonald was circling more. So what you see McDonald circling was every time as they circle and Robbie's trying to get that lead foot dominance, McDonald did a great job of driving the jab to get uh, to stop Robbie from doing it. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, another thing he did was he would throw the high kick. It would get blocked, but he would follow it with another lead hook. I thought that was cool. Um, okay, so he throws that right hook that I talked about, then throws the lead hook, and it misses. But this is the point in the fight where they just begin to open up on each other. It was right after this moment. I don't have the time on the clock exactly, but this is where they they were landing before, but this is where the big punches started happening. So then Lawler slipping to the outside of Roy's jab, making him pay a lot at this point. And Roy was able to score with the right elbow as Lawler left in with the lead hook. You could tell Lawler throws a couple of punches. He can jab at range. He can jab and slip and then throw. But sometimes he likes to jump in, right? Not, not the crazy ones he used to do against like Tiki Gosen, but he'll jump in with a, you know, almost like a lead hook. And what they were trying to do was you could see every time he would do it, Rory would throw a right elbow. It had mixed success because he couldn't quite time it right. I think the speed of Lawler kind of took him a little bit off, off guard. But I liked the innovation there. Rather than trying to meet him with a punch or duck out and come up the other side and just things that weren't really likely possible when you had that lead foot dominance that, that Rory had, or, uh, Robbie had, they tried to meet him with the elbow. I like guys using that in close quarters. You know, of course, the Carlos Condit, um, Thiago Alves bit. Uh, round three. They go back to trading. Robbie's throwing throwing a lot of rights underneath Rory's jab at this point. So he, before he was he was slipping to the outside and then throwing his left. Now he's slipping to the inside and digging the right up the top like a shovel punch. Brilliant stuff by Robbie. This is what I'm talking about. Like that kind of punch by Robbie Lawler is not going to knock you out, but it's going to hurt. It's going to get you thinking. And it he always has that power punch if he needs it later. This shows the diversity and the maturity of Robbie Lawler's striking game. Um, let's see. Rory again missed with that right elbow. Um, Rory times a jab from Lawler. Oh, this is the best. Rory 
waits for a jab from Lawler, so a right jab, ducks under it, grabs the leg, and tries to go for a what looked like a very, very hard takedown. So what does McDonald do? Uh, uh, Lawler do? Lawler's takedown defense is phenomenal. McDonald had a single leg grabbed and had wrapped the other side of the hip and was doing a very – and was circling out to run the pipe. That's how you do it. You're driving with your shoulder, leg, and the hip, really, to get it to go down. You're blocking their, the, that side so that they go down, and then you're cutting the angle at the same time. Turn the angle, driving it down, and then blocking. He does all that, but Robbie Lawler times it perfectly, getting the cross face in – I think it was his left-handed cross face – in front of McDonald, stopping it, allowing him to get the ability to, to break it, then gets the, uh, yeah. Let me see how he does it exactly. Yeah, that's right. So he gets the cross face. So then when he tries to dump him, he can't, and then he can break it free. Um, there you go. That's all that happens in, round, in that round, basically. Round four. Um, so, oh, sorry, in round three, Rory throws a right. And then that's where he lands that head kick. Because what's happening is he's expecting, he's not just measuring you with the right hand here. He is also expecting the parry from uh, Robbie Lawler. So he throws the right and then comes the head kick right behind. So he had a block on the face a little bit, but the back of the head was sort of wide open for the back of the foot, which lands and Robbie gets on, you know, skates at that point. He hangs on, but that's, that, that's the end of round three. Round four, he throws that same thing again and it hurts him again. Because you got to get both hands up on the outside here. You have to get one hand by the head, you know, answering the phone, and the other hand here, and he doesn't quite get both up in, in time. So part of that shot's able to go through. But after about a minute, Rory kind of backs up. You know, Robbie gets his his wits about him and kind of begins to walk him back. You remember in the first two or three rounds, they're kind of rotating on an axis, right? As one guy would step in, Rory was basically circling into the power hand, but he was staying off of the fence. You saw a lot of that, right? He wanted to keep the fight in the middle for the most part. I think he felt like he had his best chance there. You don't want to get caught without motion against Robbie Lawler because he can just tee off on you. So this time, though, he's backing up. He's backing up. He's not. Yes, he's circling, but not with the same kind of minute intensity. Um, the fight is totally good at this point. Lawler is marching him down. Lawler sprawls on one of the best doubles, best time doubles, like it's nothing. I mean, his take. I mean, remember how Rory won the first fight? You know, he would uh, again. BJJ Scout talked about it. He would get the lead foot dominance, and then there would be this open plane behind him, right? If you step out and then you throw, you're exposed that way. So this guy can just circle in and come get you, and he would time it perfectly. But his takedown defense was just phenomenal, right? So. Um, now Rory's having a harder time keeping Lawler off of him. He's not firing his own jab as much. He's not out there hand fighting. He's not moving his feet the way he needed to. Um, and that's when they end the round and they have that amazing stare down. Okay, round five. Lawler is not showing a lot of head movement, but he has great reaction and timing to Rory. Uh, score with jabs and crosses, eyes open, just watching how he moves. So his hands are down a little bit. He is showing movement, not a ton, not a lot, but he's basically... He's got a lot more energy at this point, and he's got a lot better movement. He's, 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 for the first time ever, kind of moving Rory in a straight line backwards. This is bad. Lawler, there's a couple punches land, but basically what happens is Lawler lands a left. Rory, Rory tries that right over the top, but it's so lazy and so late because he's so beat up and he's so tired that it misses that he realizes, wow, his reaction time is super slow. Bang, pops him again. 
And when it landed, you know, he collapsed. You know, we talk about this. Uh, and by the way, he was also slipping to the same time uh, as uh, uh, outside of the jab. So, you know, he, he sees that the reaction is super slow. And then here comes the jab, but he just, you know, he, he beats him to it. Uh, everyone talks about this fight being like, it's a great display of heart. It's a great display of, you know, grit and, and you know, all the kind of things you want. These sort of intangibles. The best MMA fights do that. The best MMA fights also do that with incredible technique. This was a master class in jab slipping, in lead foot dominance, in circling, in finding the tiniest corners of masking. You know, again, here comes my punch. You think it's a punch. I'm expecting a parry. I'm expecting you to, to block in just off of inches the wrong way so that when my leg comes up, it can crack you. It, it, I mean... It is it is sublime level of technique. Then you throw in all the courage, the athletic courage, and it takes it to another level. I like fights like Palomino versus Gaethje because they're wild brawls that will never touch a Rory McDonald versus Robbie Lawler. It will never touch that. It will never, ever be as good as that because it's the exact same amount of heart and determination with 10,000 times the level of technique. So there you go. Okay, let's go to. I'm not going to spend too much time on this one. Uh, Stevens Bermudez. There, there was this was a crazy fight. There's just a couple things to note here in round one. Um, in the in the clinch, Bermudez is pressing into Stevens this way. Stevens sort of rotates out, rotates out, rotates out, rotates out, sort of back into it, and then steps back while grabbing the head off balances Bermudez, and then in that in that pocket he's created, drives up a knee while holding the head. Thought that was kind of interesting. That definitely took place uh, in round one. Also in round one, eventually they separated. Bermudez circled into Stevens's power hand. So here's the funny thing that was really interesting. The whole time Bermudez circles into Stevens's power hand. The whole time. Now they're standing the same way. They're both orthodox fighters, I believe. Um, maybe they're both lefties, but they're the same same stance, facing each other like that. It's not wrong to circle into someone's power hand. Maybe his team saw something on the video that he um, succumbs to when that happens. Maybe they felt like that was best to set up Bermudez's wrestling. I don't know. But it eventually caused his demise, which I'll get to in round three. Round two. It looked like an early check. So Bermudez throws a leg kick. It's checked. And then he eats a hard outside rear low kick from Stevens, and that's when that leg begins to buckle. That's how that, that second round basically starts. The check goes bad, right? So if someone properly checks shin on shin, super painful. Then he eats the rear leg kick, low kick, from Stevens. That also was bad. Um, Bermudez eventually backs up Stevens, fires a right hand and a left, both of which partially land. So he goes boom, boom, right? Backs him up. But he gets greedy. Because then he parries Stevens' left and right, right? So Stevens tries to respond. He goes boom, boom, blocks Stevens's, then tries to throw his own shot. But this time, Stevens parries, he goes, he reparries basically uh, Bermudez's shot, steps out to his left, and then pops him with a one two combo. That's the first time Bermudez gets dropped. So I admire Bermudez going in there, bang, bang, reacting to. Uh, uh, Stevens, but then Stevens re-reacting, parrying the shot, and then cracking Bermudez in tight open space. 
brilliant, brilliant job by Jeremy Stevens there. Really like that. Parrying the shot, stepping out, bang, cracking him. Amazing. They'll have the wherewithal to do that in that tiny space. Very, very good. Um, so they eventually each knock each other down, not with like, you know, rocking shots, but with off balancing shots. So that was kind of fun. I also thought like, you know, cause it, like Bermuda's gets knocked down with a front kick. Jeremy Stevens gets knocked down with, I don't know, like he gets swept out from underneath his feet. They both get right back up. But the point being was, I thought this was the perfect fight, like right in the middle of the pay-per-view for the main card, right? So if you just turned on at 10 p.m., if you're a casual fan, you got those first two great fights, which I'll get to in a minute, then you get this one, and these two jokers are going back and forth. I thought it was like like the perfect interlude before the, the co-main event. Um, let's see. Also, something to note, entries almost exclusively were jab cross. So he would, I think he stands this way, so he would jab cross, jab cross. A couple times he would leap in with straight rights. A couple times he had a Superman punch, but I'm just pointing out to you, Stevens was able to parry, move left, and punch. And what I'm about to talk about in the third round, because some of the entries, he's both circling into the power of Stevens and his entries to close the distance, they were kind of repetitive a little bit. Round three, Bermudez comes in and does exactly what he did in round two when he gets dropped. Bang, bang, back Steven up, Stevens up. What does he do again? Uh, Try the jab, the jab first. And not just a jab where he's jabbing and circling. You know, Frankie here does the jab and circle, does the jab and circle. He's doing the jab where he's, you know he's coming in. Like he's his feet are moving sort of in conjunction with the jab, but they're going to move regardless. Like if the jab lands, great. If it doesn't, okay, well, he's still coming in, right? So it's this motion first, jab second kind of approach. Stevens reads it right away. So then he's trying to back Stevens up. Stevens is at the fence. There's nowhere to go. But Bermudez ended the second round and starts the third round exactly that. What does he do? He steps with the jab, re-steps with the back foot. You always want to catch someone off beat, especially for like foot sweeps. It's You don't want to catch them once their feet are on the ground. You're never going to get anything. It's when they get to the ground and then lift. That's when their balance is off. He was super lead foot heavy because he's trying to plot his way in. He sits on that front leg, and when he goes, he steps the second one out. When he goes to take the next step as he's jabbed his way in, mother effing Jeremy Stevens whoop, times it perfectly. Go back and watch. Rogan had talked about it timing a takedown. I think the eventual hope was a takedown, but I think what he was hoping to do was either wing a right hand or get the clinch, because he was not level changing in any capacity. Stevens just rose to that. That's sort of what I like about Stevens' scale. He didn't catch a guy shooting. He didn't catch a guy, you know, um, with a lowered stance. Bermudez was a little bit like this, but he was basically ramrod straight. It's just that Stevens times it perfectly. Step, step, before the third step, bang, crushes him. Brilliant timing by Jeremy Stevens. Reads the jab, motion, up on his feet, in between the beats. So if the beat is one, two, three, four where they're stepping you go one two bang that's when you hit him that's exactly when he hit him i'm talking impeccable timing it's the kind of thing that prize fighters have that you know i'm not saying jeremy stevens has that all the time the guy was coming off i think about what two losses you know he can be beaten but you know that kind of athletic timing man is brilliant so again you always want to catch someone in the middle of a beat one two three bang caught him caught him brilliant all right, let's go.
Let's talk quickly about uh, Thatch versus Nelson. First of all, I thought it was some good uh, clinch work from Nelson a couple of times. They would wrap up. Thatch looked pretty huge. You saw Gunnar Nelson doing a good job of wrapping the neck, stepping at an angle, and then pulling Thatch with him. So then Thatch would have to be, would force to, be forced to take reactive steps along the way. Now, eventually, Gunnar Nelson gets double underhooks, and Thatch, like, like judo chop hands underneath the neck and then pushes off a frame. I talked about the frames before, pushes him off and then breaks the uh, double underhooks because, you know, Brendan Thatch is strong as a friggin' ox. But I'm just pointing out, you know, it was good. I was actually kind of impressed. When, you, when you're working to clinch, you always focus on what their hands doing and the digging for underhooks. You got to watch their feet, man. That's really what it's all about. If you're in a clinch with someone, you're just doing this and your feet aren't moving, you're going to get chewed to pieces. That's just what's going to happen. And you see Gunnar Nelson, man, stepping at angles, grabbing it firing underhook or getting risk control and then yanking as he steps back pulling thatch with him it was awesome very very good clinch work by by uh gunner nelson and then getting his knees in there in between too like he's scoring offense the whole time you know um you know thatch was switching stances a lot when he was doing what robbie lawler was doing where it was open opposite stance he was trying to get lead foot dominance a couple times land some nice you know really really low kicks he was hand fighting that's what he was trying to do was he's trying to show him different looks right by going switching in stances switching in stances when he had the outside opposite stance going low grabbing the jab and then firing his own i think it was his own left straight here's the problem with what he was doing and this is the brilliance of gunner nelson go back and watch thatch every time he switches stances the hands drop every time because what's he doing he's turning almost out of pocket resetting and then starting the process anew again it looks sort of seamless in the middle of a fight but there's these I, i'll talk about the timing right these narrow windows that fighters see this is what i talk about when i talk about elite prize fighting you have that much of an error to make before someone like gunner nelson from iceland eats you alive so what does he do he sees him do this over and over again over and over again finally he catches Nelson going from left to right, hands come down, and before he can even react to it, bang, bang, lead, cross, both of them land, drops him right there. But that's what he was looking for. Every time he was switching stances, whoop, the hands dropped because he wanted to reset the striking position. It wasn't a natural thing for him, at least not natural enough. He wasn't as defensively responsible in the transition as he was supposed to be. He drops the hands, gets crushed with the left, you know, and like a darting left too. Like not, there's no hook to it. It's straight up the middle, and then the right comes too. Catches him, drops him, moves right to mount. Um, so this is amazing. Nelson moves to mount, then moves to side because you know Thatch is heavy underneath and reacting. Then goes to knee on belly all the time. I mean, you want to talk about underhooking, like his control of a bigger man because he is a bigger dude is re ridiculous by Gunnar Nelson. It's hard to explain. I need, I'd rather have the footage. Suffice to say, go back and watch him go from mount to side to knee on belly, back to mount. Thatch just realizes he's just boned at this point. Bridges and then gets to his base, but man, you, this is not, that's just not going to work against someone like uh, Gunnar Nelson, right? you got to bridge to one side. you got to have an elbow across their hip, and then you need to come... You bridge to one side, you have to maybe bridge back to the other side and then bridge back to the other side. You have to keep going so you can eventually keep their hip off of you and then the hand on the shin to then go for half guard and maybe you can shrimp back to guard. And even then, you're going to eat punches the whole time. It's 
it's just it's a horrible place to be. There's no real good answers. But I'm just saying, rolling right to your base, anybody good, and Gunnar Nelson is good. They're going to just take your back, and that's exactly what happened. So here's the funny part. How did he get choked in the Ben Henderson fight? He sat up and then tried to hand fight, do something else. He does the exact same thing. Not as bad, not as long, but the exact same thing. He sits up and there's nothing protecting him. Also, his left wrist is being controlled by Gunner's left wrist underneath. So it looked like, if you're watching, it looks like, well, he's got Gunner Nelson's hand trapped. He doesn't. Nelson's kind of got just enough of a push and a pull going there to get the hand free when he needs it. So he sits up, and what does Gunnar Nelson do? Yes, for a while, Thatch had the hand up, but he drops it when he sits up, and then when he comes back up, it's kind of like here. It's not really tight. So Nelson just, I mean, sinks it. And you can see, man, when a guy, look, there are guys out there, man, when they get a choke, you can have the chin down, you can have the chin down, looking in like you're supposed to be, shoulder up, the whole biz. Gunnar Nelson, man, you just, you you. You just you just get that, and if you give and you gave him that, and that's it, man. So he eventually, he, you know, he just won. He won. You ever see that uh, Adam's family with the hand crawls? You can do that if you have an underhook on someone. You can actually just walk your hand up, and their arm will come up. Um, he does that on the shoulder. You'd be surprised how strong your hand is when you do that. Uh, he does that here. He just walks his hand back till it it goes into the throat, and then he's able to finally get his hands free. And I think Gable grip him. And at that point, man, once that squeeze is on from a guy who you know. Talking about guys who beat heavyweights at Abu Dhabi, it's lights out. Uh, so fantastic job by Gunnar Nelson. Uh, then lastly, Almeida versus Pickett. This was an interesting fight. I had to watch this fight a couple of times. Here's what I noticed: both guys wanted to react off of the other guy, and it was at first Almeida was accommodating of that, and that's when he got chewed up. It was only after he adjusted to that and then created some angles that things change. But that's if you go back and watch, whoever was countering in that fight was winning through the whole thing. So at some points, Almeida was countering. He was lighting Pickett up. Pickett early was countering. Pickett was lighting him up. That's sort of what was happening here. They were reacting to the punches of the other guy, baiting him in, reacting, and then, you know, crashing him. Um, so early, Pickett was picking him apart. He was uh, timing the parry of the jab to come over the, with the right cross. You could see Almeida would parry here, and then whenever he would do that, Pickett would just bait him, bait him, wait to get parried, bing, and here would come the right hand crushing him. Did it with the left side too, although only after he would step out and then come over with the left. But I'm just pointing out, that's how we started cracking him on the right side early. Um, at first, Almeida was not setting up a lot of angles, more just straight on trying to win on speed or being first and proactive in the combos. That didn't do so well. So here's how the first big knockdown came. Pickett slips to the outside of Almeida's right. So Almeida throws a right. Pickett slips to the outside while throwing his own head. His head is Pickett is perfectly off center. Almeida ramrod straight, kaboom! The right hand just just blitzes Almeida. Amazing, right? And then he he whips a monster left hook back over the top. So understand what happens here. Pickett is like this. Here comes the punch. He slips to the outside while crushing him with his own right. And then, remember, he's leaning this way. He takes his left, drives off of his left, his left leg. I mean, the leg, the hips, everything's into it. Drives off of it, and then when the punch comes back. I mean, you want to talk about getting lit on fire. That is what that looks like. Slips to the outside while eating this punch. Because some guys just slip and counter. 
he throws the right while he slips and then uses all of that power in the hips and in the feet, rotating the ankle, crushes him. Almeida goes down. Uh, he eventually recovered. Picky goes right back to his combo where he's baiting Almeida in, but then Almeida knocks him down. So here's how he does it. First, he goes like a right cross to the body. So he, um, no, not a cross. He does a right jab to the body. Right? No, it's a, it's a cross because he's, he's right-handed. So he does a right cross to the body. Um, and then what happens is you see Pickett think he's going to do it again. So he steps in again like he's going to throw that same right to the body. Pickett tries to time an uppercut because he thinks that when you throw it to the body, you have your level has to come down just a little bit to reach that surface. He comes down a little bit, but there's no uppercut there. Right? Instead, Almeida slightly re- um uh, Almeida comes over the top, not to the body. So, so he fires the jab. Pickett kind of backs up, waits for him to come in. As he comes in, Almeida looks like he's going to lower, but he doesn't lower enough. Pickett fires the jab. It doesn't go. Or Pickett fires the uppercut. Doesn't go anywhere. Over the top, bang! Just, just drills Pickett with that one. Pickett eventually went for a double leg, um, but uh, credit to to. Almeida, he eventually gets back to guard, almost hits like an upa sweep where, you know, you almost from full guard hit mount, it's like you reverse them. It's like a, it's like a hip bump sweep kind of, um, but Pickett doesn't fall for it. Then Almeida captures the wizard and then they stand and separate. So great job by um, uh, Almeida in uh, recovering from the double leg, getting his guard back, almost hitting an upa sweep, using the upa sweep to get just enough of a wizard, wizard to stand. Nice. At the buzzer, Pickett throws a right. Almeida steps to his left while throwing his left over the over Pickett's right, and then drills home a right hand, similar to the other combo that dropped uh, that Pickett used to drop Almeida. Um, and then here comes round two. Round two, Pickett tries to get a knee in as Almeida is bent over because he's going back to that body work, back to that body work. So he tries to get a knee. Uh, Almeida jabs. He jabs. Excuse me. He's left-handed. Right, yeah, he's he's right-handed, so he jabs to the left, and then Pickett's backing up. What's he expecting again? It looked like he was expecting another jab because what happens is, um, Pickett puts his hands out like this, both hands. He he never sees the shot coming ever. He never looks down. He never like in slow motion. He never flinches. It just lands full on. It looked like he was expecting another jab, and he used he he was getting close to the fence. It looked like he was going to want to circle out. What does Almeida do? Almeida does not just land on a switch knee, the left knee, putting up Pickett's lights out. He lands it while he grabs the left hand with his head, or his, grabs the head with his left hand. So he jumps, switches knees. So, I mean, you're, you're just going to get crushed. Because when you switch knees, you can really, you know, you can really drive it up. Jeremy Stevens didn't need to switch knees. He just sort of jumped up because he's super athletic. But this is, you know, a case where you can jump, switch knee, and then when he does it, grabs the back of Pickett's head with the same side hand as the knee and pulls him into it. I mean, you know, you're not <laughs> – good luck beating that guy. Good luck. That is ridiculous. That is completely, totally ridiculous what Thomas Almeida was able to do. It was sort of amazing. But what you saw what guys were doing was once they were, once they were able to counter off of the other guy in that Almeida-Pickett fight – once they're able to set up a condition and get a guy to throw a punch that they wanted to, you know, that's when they could come over with, you know, Pickett thinks it's an uppercut. He's going to come over with a right. Oh, Almeida thinks that um, a jab's going to be thrown. Uh, good. Pickett will lean out and then drive left into him, you know, crazy. But 
it was that it was the uh, it was the jab. It was the unorthodox, unexpected nature of the knee. But it, Pickett just goes like this, puts his hands out, looks like he wanted to circle, and then Almeida grabs the back of the head and drives it into the knee as he drives the knee up on a switch. Yo, my man probably had some headaches that day. So look, I've been going forever. I think this has gone like a full hour, if not more. Um, I can't do any more of this. Here's what I'm going to do. Um, oh, and by the way, let me get the time on that just so we have the official thing. Uh, Jeremy Stevens stopped Dennis Bermudez with a flying knee and punches at 32 seconds of the third round. Gunnar Nelson defeated Brandon Thatch at 254 of the first round. Thomas Almeida defeated Brad Pickett at 29 seconds of the second round, all via, uh, or at least that one being uh, via flying knee. So quickly before we go, we have just the last segment of this podcast, What's Next? Three events this week. Duffy versus Mir, UFC, on Wednesday. You have Bellator 140 on Friday. That's going to be Douglas Lima versus Andre Koreshkov. Michael Venom Page is on that card. Paul Daly is on that card. Chris Honeycutt is on that card. And then, of course, on Saturday morning, you've got Bisping versus Lighties, which I actually think is a pretty good fight. Uh, and it's the UFC's debut in Scotland, so it should be a raucous crowd. Um, and um, actually, I think that main event's pretty good, you know. That should, be a, that should be a nice, fun matchup. I think it's actually more competitive than people realize. Okay, if you have questions for me, you can email me, luke.thomas at sbnation.com. If you have, uh, you're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Sports and at Thomas on Twitter. I will put this video up on MMA Fighting immediately. Thank you for watching. Please try to have a healthy, balanced view of, of Conor McGregor. He is very excellent, but he has flaws like every fighter does. Just acknowledge him. Okay? And then you can talk about his good stuff because it is very good stuff. Until next time, enjoy the fights.